My name is Stephanie Capuchon. I am a uh, partner at Deckert and uh, co-chair of the Investment Advisors and Investment Companies Committee uh, of the Financial Services section at uh, BBA. And um, I'm joined uh, by Ken Burden, uh, who's a partner at Skadden, uh, focusing on investment companies and investment advisors. Um, we're doing a, a bit of a, a fundamental session today, so this will be uh, pretty kind of high level uh, with respect to the Investment Company Act and the Investment Advisors Act. Um, there are uh, slides uh, that, that will be available and are, are pretty detailed um, that provide some additional information. So with that, I will turn it over to Ken. All right, thanks very much, Stephanie. Um, appreciate the introduction and thanks everybody for uh, joining this um, BBA Fundamental Series. Um, I've been doing this for uh, many years now and um, this, is a, uh, this is a great introduction into what an investment company is and kind of how it's run and how the industry's set up. And if, if you're looking just for some basic information about um, how to be an investment company lawyer. Um, this, this is the place for you. So I'm going to start kind of high level, and then we're going to quickly get into um, some more, some weeds, but we're going to keep those weeds kind of fundamental. We're not going to go um, uh, too, too in depth, um, but hopefully at the end of this, you'll you know, kind of know what an investment company is. Uh, you'll know the major players that are involved with, um, you know, running an investment company, and you'll be able to identify, um, you know, the major issues that an investment company lawyer should be thinking about every time um, a client comes and asks them a question. So I guess first, what is an investment company? Um, well, it's, uh, we'll go to the next slide. So it's a company that issues securities and invests in securities. Um, so obviously, the Investment Company Act has a you know multi-part you know multi-factor definition of what an investment company is. But when you're just kind of sitting back and thinking about what what is it fundamentally, and it's a company that its only assets are securities that it issues securities so that you can um, participate in the returns um, from those assets. Um, typically, the way an investment company is set up is, you know, an investment advisor, which is going to be one of the parties we talk about, but an investment advisor, and these are your Putnam's, these are your Black Rocks, these are your Fidelities, they sponsor a new fund by doing all the work to set up the entity. Um, they typically have a board of trustees that, you know, works, uh, that works with their funds, um, and they they do all of the kind of launch and corporate governance and advertising and marketing things to um, create the fund uh, and sell it to the public. Um, selling an investment fund to the public is regulated by um, the Investment Company Act of 1940. Um, the you know that regulates the fund itself and contains detailed uh, governance and operational requirements. Um, and then, of course, because you're selling to the public, you've got the Securities Act to address as well, which we'll, we'll lightly touch on um, later. So the other point about investment companies and investment company regulation um, and being an investment company lawyer that I, I think is kind of critically important to like orient yourself when you're thinking about problems that clients bring you is that from a historical perspective, the investment company grew out of the abuses um, of, of, a, of, of funds in the 1920s. 
And uh, there was a big study about these abuses throughout the 30s that culminated in the Investment Company Act of 1940. And those abuses generally involved um, insiders benefiting themselves at the expense of public investors. And that theme runs through the statute in a variety of different ways. And when we get to those different parts of the statute, um, um, I'll point those out um, to you in terms of, you know, how it thematically fits in, the, you know, we are trying to address this abuse. So on to the next slide. Um, this is a fun little diagram that I've put together that shows you what an investment company really is. So if you look there in the middle, what you got is a fund that is just a pool of assets. It's a pool of securities, okay? That fund is organized under the laws of some state, which you know we'll, we'll actually get to on the next slide. But because that's an entity organized under state law, it has a board of directors um, or a board of trustees, depending on the form of uh, organization. And that board of trustees or directors is responsible for overseeing the operations of the fund. Now what the board now what happens is the board, you know, hires and approves an investment advisor. Now remember I said earlier that the investment advisor does all the work to set up this structure, right? So a lot of the times what has happened is the investment advisor already has an established board of directors that um, works with their funds. So you just create another fund with that same board. But the board also oversees and hires the investment advisor, which you see. So the investment advisor doesn't own anything. It has a contract with the fund. Similarly, there's usually an administrator, which could be the investment advisor or a third party. Um, that administrator takes care of accounting-related tasks and um, you know, kind of general administration of the business. There's a custodian that holds the fund's assets. So the fund doesn't hold its assets itself. The investment advisor doesn't hold the assets. Uh, you have a third party bank typically that holds the assets. And this is of course to keep the, um, you know, the investment advisor uh, or the uh, officers or employees of the fund from absconding with your money, um, which you know, is, is a very real risk as Bernie Madoff taught us um, you know, 10 or so years ago. But the Investment Company Act is meant to address conflicts like that. And so we have to have an independent custodian. Uh, there's a transfer agent that helps with you know, the buying and the selling of the shares. They keep track of uh, what you own in the fund. Um, there is also an underwriter. And the underwriter is the one who sells the shares to you. It's usually an affiliate of the investment advisor, um, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, and then you're coming to the only people who have any kind of ownership interest in the fund, and that's you, the investors. So all these other entities generally just have contracts with the fund. Uh, and then a couple in addition I made this year was just to show you where you as lawyers fit in here. So there's usually a council to the fund, which is a fund council. That fund council can also be the lawyers for the advisor as well. Uh, and there's usually a, a separate firm that represents the independent directors. So we'll get to this, but the directors of an investment company have to be independent of the investment advisor. Um, and that's one of these checks and balances to prevent abu abuses that we talked about. So there's different ways firms kind of organize this. Sometimes a firm will be counsel to the board and the fund, and they won't represent the investment advisor. Sometimes 
the law firm will be counsel to the fund and the investment advisor, and there will be a separate counsel that only represents the independent directors. So those are those are the basic roles that you as lawyers, as external lawyers, would play um, with, a, with, with an investment company. Um, of course, the advisors, being big business entities, also have uh, internal legal departments, and those internal um, legal folks um, also play a critical role in, in, in running the fund and engaging outside counsel uh, and interfacing with the board and the fund's other service providers. So that's kind of what a fund is there. So we'll move on to um, the next slide. Let's check for questions, all right. Um, so remember we said that an investment company is a state law organization, right? So that fund, that pool of assets is typically organized either as a Delaware statutory trust, as a, as a Massachusetts business trust, as a Maryland corporation, or as a Maryland statutory trust. So if you're thinking of getting into the investment company world, um, you'll find that becoming you know, expert in Delaware, Massachusetts, and Maryland law um, is going to be uh, very beneficial to you um, because those are, those are really the only three you know, forms of entities that you're, you're ever going to see. Um, yes, the, the kind of exemption aspect of this is kind of, you know, you've, you might have heard of uh, private equity funds and hedge funds. Um, you know, that's not what we're going to be talking about here. Uh, those are also investment companies because they are uh, companies that, you know, own securities and issue securities. Um, but they rely on exemptions that are either based on the number of investors uh, or the sophistication of the investors and the fact that they're not making public offerings. So on to the next slide. Um, uh, so what we're going to do now is kind of run through the different types of investment companies, probably from you know, the most familiar to the least familiar. Um, so the first type of investment company is an open-end mutual fund. This is what you, you probably own. If you have a 401k, you own mutual funds. If you have a, you know, a self-directed brokerage account, um, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would suspect that you have mutual funds in it too. These are funds that you buy and sell shares uh, to and from on a daily basis. So you can buy shares from the fund at its net asset value which is the value of all those securities in the fund. Um, or, and you can redeem your shares by simply putting them back to the fund and saying, buy my shares back at that net asset value. Um, and that's a direct transaction with the fund itself. You're not trading with any other investor. Um, you're simply buying shares from the fund, selling them back to the fund. Um, these funds are continuously offered. Um, and they're required to have a liquid portfolio because they need to meet these redemptions um, and they need to price daily in order to sell their shares and redeem their shares. Um, and, and also because of that, you know, there's a limit on, on illiquid assets in their portfolio of 15%. So oftentimes you'll see, you know, people talk about different mutual fund share classes, you know, A, C, R, T, I, right? And they all of these different share classes have different uh, ways of paying um, for, 
for selling the shares, right? They give you an option to either pay an upfront fee or maybe there's no fees or maybe there's ongoing um, uh, fees related to distribution. But in essence, it's a way to uh, access different distribution channels for the mutual fund, whether it's through your brokerage or whether you're buying it from the fund um, directly. So then on the ETFs, so e e ETFs, you're probably quite familiar with as well. Um, and these are funds that trade on an exchange. Um, and I'm gonna pass this over to Stephanie to you know, chat a little bit more about e ETFs because she does a bit more work than I do in this area and can probably um, ex ex explain it uh, uh, better for you all. Yeah, so um, ETFs are, I guess I would say they're a little bit of a hybrid between the open-end funds we just discussed and uh, closed-end funds that we'll discuss on uh, following slides. And what's kind of interesting about them is that while open-end funds, closed-end funds have been around since um, before 1940, um, hence the Investment Company Act of 1940, ETFs are really uh, a more recent development, didn't really launch until the 1990s, I would say. Um, so ETFs are, uh, most of them are organized as open-end funds. Uh, some of the, the older ones were organized as, and still quite large ones are organized as unit investment trusts. But uh, fundamentally, they're open-end funds, but their shares also trade on an exchange. So authorized participants, so large financial institutions, can buy and sell shares directly from the fund, uh, somewhat similar to the uh, mutual funds we just talked about, except they can only uh, do that in uh, what are called creation unit aggregations. So large blocks of shares, 50,000, 25,000, 100,000. Um, those uh, uh, authors, Authorized participants frequently transact in kind with the uh, ETF. So we'll deliver a basket of securities in exchange for the shares. And if, if the authorized participant is redeeming, they receive uh, a basket of securities uh, fr from the fund upon delivery of the, the shares. Uh, one of the kind of key requirements for ETFs, for most ETFs, is that they disclose their full holdings on a daily basis. And so that is basically the, the mechanism um, that allows the market makers and authorized participants to engage in effective arbitrage with respect to the shares. So at any given time, they know how much the underlying portfolio is worth. They know how much the ETF shares are trading at and they can determine whether it makes sense for them to buy or sell shares at the ETF. And, and ultimately what happens is they close any premium or discount with respect to the ETF share. So if ETF shares are trading at a premium above net asset value, uh, discount below net asset value. Um, those premiums and discounts are really um, at a minimum compared to uh, closed end funds, which we'll, we'll talk about in a bit. Um, Initially, these required exemptive relief in order to operate, so they're not contemplated by the 40 Act and required various exemptions. Uh, there is a rule now, Rule 6011, that uh, allows ETFs to operate without obtaining uh, separate exemptive relief subject to certain conditions. Uh, the primary condition is that they disclose their full holdings daily. Um, there are now some uh, 
uh, non-transparent or semi-transparent ETFs, those operate pursuant to separate exemptive relief that um, essentially contemplate some sort of alternative mechanism to allow for um, effective arbitrage. Right now, those are limited to uh, U.S. equity securities, so they're definitely not um, the as broad in scope as the uh, ETFs that disclose full holdings daily. Um, so, I'll All turn right. it back to you, Ken. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so let's talk about uh, yet another type of investment company, which is a traditional registered closed-end fund. And so, you know, this is going to be, you know, these. So let, let's just put it on the table. These are traded on an exchange, but they're not ETFs. Okay. So, a closed-end fund is a different kind of investment company that offers non-redeemable shares. So this is an investment company you can buy shares from, but you can't sell the shares back to the fund, okay? In order to get out of your investment, you're gonna have to find somebody else to trade with. So how does that work? Now, typically the stock in a closed end fund is offered in an IPO with an underwriting syndicate just like any other company, like Facebook, right, or 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 Twitter or whoever, or IBM, okay, um, and it's usually a syndicate of you know twenty to thirty or thirty-five banks, um, and it's a it's a it's a full capital markets transaction, um, and the fund raises whatever it raises, uh, and then lists its shares typically on the New York Stock Exchange um, or or one of the you know other related exchanges. So um, you get your you get your liquidity and your investment by trading with other investors on the exchange. Um, so what what is you know kind of how does that help? What does it do? Right. So the it allows the fund to invest in more illiquid assets uh, and stay more fully invested uh, than open end funds um, because. They, the closed end fund doesn't have to maintain liquidity to meet investment. I'm sorry, to meet redemptions. Um, and it doesn't have to maintain a cash position as a buffer uh, for, for meeting redemptions, for example. Um, so it can stay more fully invested and kind of theoretically get you a bigger return. Um, so what are some of the characteristics of closed end funds beyond that? So we talked about how an open-end fund has a net asset value, or a closed-end fund does too. That's the value of its assets. But it also has another value, which is the market price you can trade it on the exchange for. Um, so uh, that market price is, you know, historically, mostly for many funds, been less than the net asset value. So there's a discount, there's a delta there. Um, and that, um, and that, uh, that 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 discount um, can be small, it can be big, but you know the point is that discount exists uh, for the closed end funds where you don't see it so much with the ETFs because the closed end funds don't you know publish their um, publish their holdings on a daily basis. There's no kind of real transparency into what the closed end fund is holding in real time. Uh, you get kind of quarterly snapshots of of what it's holding. Um, so. Uh, that that's a bit of that's a bit of a difference there. Um, 
Now, closed-end funds, as as I noted, are are all the shares are sold in an IPO, so they're usually not continuously offered. So you don't usually have a current prospectus. You just have kind of regular periodic reporting that's required under the Investment Company Act. But, you know, kind of more and more closed-end funds are doing secondary-type offerings where they're either, you know, doing a rights, it's something called a rights offering, um, where they seek to raise more assets. Um, Closed-end funds can issue preferred shares. Uh, They can issue debt. Um, And so there's quite a kind of capital markets practice um, around closed-end funds. And then one thing to point out, too, is that the exchange requirements, um, so like the New York Stock Exchange's rules essentially require closed-end funds to operate like little mini public companies. Um, So they have an annual meeting, they elect their directors every year, they have proxy statements, and there's um, a a cottage industry of activist uh, hedge fund managers um, who try to make money off of that spread between the market price and the net asset value. Um, that you know, kind of wreck, wreck havoc on a handful of funds every year. So on to the next slide. Uh, the next slide, uh, the next couple slides actually talk about uh, business development companies. So we're not going to spend too much time on business development companies because it is, you know, again like a very niche area. Um, but what business development companies are is they're essentially a special kind of closed-end fund. Um, so, you know, like a closed-end fund, you know, they, they, they trade on an exchange. Um, you know, their basic business model is providing private debt financing to middle market companies, whereas a closed-end fund might do all kinds of different things. Um, you know, investing in equities, kind of investing in publicly traded debt. Um, et cetera, whereas BDCs are much more on kind of the, the, the private side of, of investing and, and specifically into, you know, you know providing you know, private debt financing, like uh, bank loans and whatnot. Um, and the fun thing about BDCs is kind of the way they use the capital markets because they, they serially have to go out and, uh, you know, raise, you know, five-year, seven-year um, bonds in order to finance their business. So at least from a, um, from a lawyer's point of view, um, you know, they, they tend to be more active in, in the capital markets. And, um, you know, that, that provides a, uh, a, a, a fun set of work to do. Um, BD, so on to the next slide. You know, as I said, BDCs are kind of like investment, uh, kind of like are, are kind of like, you know, special kind of closed end fund. And they're special in the sense that, you know, there's a special part of the statute, um, uh, sections 54 to 65, that kind of what it does is it takes the Investment Company Act and modifies it and says, you know, here's what are here's what's applicable to BDCs. And some of the key areas of modification are um, there's relaxed rules for transactions with affiliates, which we'll talk about. Um, there's relaxed limits on um, you know how much debt and preferred equity you can you can raise. Um, and there's relaxed rules around you know um, compensation of the advisor and distribution and repurchase of securities. And you'll you'll notice BDCs do like what what I call normal 34 act reporting, which is 10 Ks and 10 Qs and 8 Ks, um, as opposed to um, 
you know, the NCSR and import reporting that you see in typically of investment companies. Um, and of course, because BD, so BDCs are meant to um, help finance small businesses. So there's rules about their portfolio composition, which you see at the bottom of the slide about how 70% of their assets must be securities of eligible portfolio companies. And that's in essence, a private company um, and where you um, purchase that private company's securities uh, on a private placement basis. So we'll go on to the next slide. And that's again, just um, you know a, a little bit more on BDCs. And again, because they're meant to help um, small businesses in the United States succeed, um, there's also a requirement that they offer or make available what's called significant managerial assistance to their portfolio companies. So this is guidance on management operations or business objectives. Um, also, to answer one question that I did see come in, yes, these slides will be available um, afterwards. Uh, so on to the next slide. Um, so one last kind of niche area to, to know about. So we've talked about open-end open mutual funds, we've talked about ETFs, we've talked about um, business development companies, we've talked about traditional closed-end funds, and now there's also kind of another category, the last category I, I talk about called alternative closed-end funds. So these are essentially hybrid, hybrid structures, kind of like ETFs are hybrid structures. Um, but alternative closed-end funds um, try to kind of meld some of the characteristics of open-end funds and closed-end funds um, to create some unique products, one of which is called the interval fund. Um, this is a fund that, like an open-end fund, is unlisted, but like a closed-end fund, is not required to meet redemptions on a daily basis, but is required to provide some type of liquidity to their investors, and that's through these um, periodic repurchase offers that you see noted in the slides of uh, between 5 and 25% of their outstanding shares at net asset value, just like a mutual fund. Um, and, you know, the, the rule that governs them requires, uh, you know, interval funds to have sufficient liquidity to meet their periodic repurchase obligations. So there's an extra bit of liquidity requirement on this type of closed-end fund as opposed to what you would see traded on an exchange. Um, and then there are some other kind of le lesser used alternative closed end fund structures like tender offer funds, which are, um, you know, es essentially like interval funds, except there's no requirement that they buy back the shares. It's in the discretion of the board. Um, and uh, kind of as, as, I, as I noted, you know, this helped, you know, these types of structures are typically used for more illiquid strategies. Um, because the more illiquid strategies don't typically trade well uh, on an exchange for a traditional closed-end fund. So on to the next slide. Um, we've got, so this is where we kind of start talking about some common features of, of all public investment companies. Um, so we've gone through the types of investment companies there are. So let's, let's go through kind of some of the major features that, you know, you as lawyers would typically, you know, come across or, or be asked about. And we'll go on to the next slide right now. There we go. So 
Um, key feature number one is that the board of directors has to be a majority independent. Um, and uh, th this is key. The SEC views the independent directors as you know their eyes and ears and the watchdog. Um, so there's there's very strong importance put on having um, your independent board. Uh, the second key feature is restrictions on transactions with affiliates. <clears throat> and notice the parenthetical and affiliates of affiliates. So the prohibitions include trading directly with affiliates, which we call principal transactions. So this is if you and your affiliate buy and sell a share of stock from and to each other. Uh, agency transactions, which is where a fund might use a broker that is affiliated with its investment advisor. And we have joint transactions, which is where a fund and its affiliate are seeking to profit jointly in a transaction. And this is a, that's a very broad category, which is, is really kind of viewed as a close to a catch-all conflict of interest rule, given how broad it is. So what's an affiliated person? Because, right, that's key to knowing who we can transact with. Um, anyone in a control relationship with the fund is an affiliate. So control is presumed at a 25% ownership level. And the SEC takes the view that an investment advisor that has created and sponsored a fund, as we talked about earlier, controls it. Um, 5% plus owners of the fund are affiliates and any entities in which the fund owns 5% or more are affiliates. So up and down 5%. The officers, directors and employees of the fund or any entity are affiliates of that entity. Uh, and then a fund's investment advisor is an affiliated person of the fund like just by being the investment advisor, whether you can make an argument it, it, it controls or not. So what does this mean? It means you have a very broad you know, web of entities that could potentially be affiliates of the fund um, or affiliates of affiliates and be caught into these prohibitions of, um, of trading uh, or transacting jointly. Um, so I'll just give a a, a kind of insane example. So, you know, say a fund owns 6% of a portfolio company. That means that portfolio company is an affiliate of the fund. And then say some totally unrelated entity owns 8% of that portfolio company. Well, now that totally unrelated entity is an affiliate of an affiliate of the fund. Um, by virtue of you know these these rules about you know five percent ownership, and so then you have to figure out whether you know the you know what whether there's a rule that would allow you to transact with that very remote affiliate, um, whether um, when you know if if, if the transaction was um, proposed. Well, and as I mentioned, there's slightly different rules for the BDCs, but they have the same basic flavor. So um, moving on to the next slide, um, the next common feature of, of all public investment companies is that they have to have an advisory contract 
that's renewed each year by a vote of the independent board members. And can't and it can't be materially changed without a shareholder vote. Uh, we'll get into more detail on that um, as we as we move on. Um, there are prohibitions on investing in other investment companies. Um, there are diversification requirements. You either have to commit to be diversified or non-diversified. And if you want the special tax treatment for investment companies, you also have to meet a separate type of diversification test. So that is key for all public investment companies. And every, and every investment company has to have a board-approved compliance program that's reasonably designed to prevent violations of the federal securities laws. So that compliance program includes a chief compliance officer that's appointed by the board and whose compensation is determined by the board and who can only be terminated by the board. Um, and, the, uh, and, and another piece of the compliance program that comes up frequently are codes of ethics that address personal securities trading um, by, uh, by advisory employees. So I'm actually going to um, skip over the next couple slides here to make sure that we have time to uh, talk about some of these more key issues in depth. So we're gonna to go to the board of directors slide, which is slide 20. And so um, I think I was gonna pass it over here to, to Stephanie to kind of run through some of the, the detailed requirements um, that boards of directors need to make. Yeah, so uh, boards of directors or, or commonly uh, trustees uh, are, as Ken mentioned, really a, a key feature um, of the investment company structure and very important um, from an SEC perspective because they are there to uh, address the conflicts of interest uh, associated with um, having an advisor who's, who sponsors the fund also engage uh, subject to a, a contract with the with the investment company. So, just in terms of the requirements with respect to independence, um, so a majority of the uh, board typically needs to be an independent. Um, technically, the requirement is uh, forty percent, but in order to rely on exemptive rules that almost every investment company relies on, uh, it does need to be 50%. And Section 2A19 of the 40 Act sets forth the definition of the interested person and really applies a pretty strict standard, I would say, with respect to independence. Um, uh, an independent trustee cannot be an officer or employee of the advisor. I think that seems fairly uh, straightforward. Can't be an immediate family member of someone who is an officer or employee of the investment advisor. Um, but then we get into some more uh, technical requirements. Um, an independent trustee can't own a single share of stock um, in an investment advisor or, of the fund or its uh, parent company. Um, that obviously can be pretty challenging. Um, it's first of all, not, not even limited to stock, it's like debt as well. Um, but if you think about large public companies, Goldman, JP Morgan, et cetera, um, obviously their um, uh, securities traded on National Securities Exchange, uh, pretty easy to uh, buy shares of those. And uh, if you think about 
we don't really touch on this here, but manager of managers fund complexes where the advisor actually then hires sub advisors to manage the assets of the fund. This can subject uh, directors to a really broad uh, set of restrictions in terms of the their, uh, their own personal securities ownership. Um, other requirements uh, relate to execution of portfolio transactions for the fund or um, affiliated accounts, um, uh, distribution of shares for the fund, et cetera. Basically, the, the bottom line is that anyone who's currently affiliated with a broker-dealer, it's going to be pretty challenging for them to uh, qualify as independent. Um, so then kind of what is what is the role of the independent uh, independent board? So they the board needs to approve on an annual basis the advisory contract between the fund and the investment advisor. So going back to the, the fidelity, the Putnam, uh, the JP Morgan, the uh, each of those would enter into an advisory contract with the, the registered investment company to provide these advisory services. And it's the role of the, the board and particularly the independent uh, trustees to evaluate those contracts on an annual basis. Um, the uh, approve they approve ad auditors on an annual basis, um, underwriting contracts, so uh, di distribution agreements. Um, there are also various other items under exemptive rules, uh, so 12B1 plans. If a fund um, uh, has a 12B1 plan, basically allowing it to incur certain expenses in connection with distribution, that uh, needs to be um, approved on an annual basis. And uh, I know we, t in terms of uh, the uh, the I guess how the board gets elected, um, if a less than a majority of the board has been elected by shareholders, then at that point a fund needs to call a shareholder meeting. Um, in between uh, elections, the board can appoint additional board members without uh, without shareholder elections. Uh, if, as long as not less than two thirds of the trustees after the appointment will have been um, elected by shareholders. So you typically see open-end funds go out periodically um, over several years to uh, get shareholder approval of their uh, or trustees or directors. As uh, Ken mentioned, uh, closed-end funds are uh, a little different, basically subject to similar requirements to public companies. So those funds actually are required to hold annual meetings and do have annual election of directors. Usually it will be a subset of the directors every year. Um, and then uh, typically there is a committee structure in place Definitely an audit committee that's kind of contemplated under the 40 Act. We often see um, nominating or governance and nominating. Sometimes you'll see a compliance committee, um, but really that is up to the, the board in terms of how they want to structure their, their operations. Um, All right. Go ahead. <laughs> yep, and then on, then on to the next slide there, right? I mean, we've got so one one of the key things Stephanie mentioned was advisory contract approval, and that this is the this is one of the most critical functions of 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 the board and the independent board members. So you have you know Section 15 of the Investment Company Act requires 
that the board and a majority of the independent directors approve the advisory contract between the fund and the advisor. That has to happen at least once a year. Now, before COVID, uh, this was this is this was such a serious requirement that you actually had to all be you know you had to have a majority of the independent directors physically present in person in the same room at a meeting to approve the advisory contract, and that had been a long-standing position of the uh, of the SEC in terms of what in person means under the Investment Company Act. Um, you know, since since COVID um, and and relief is still ongoing. Um, Boards are permitted to um, approve advisory contracts and other, there's a couple other in-person um, approval requirements. Uh, they are permitted to do that via video conference or, or, or teleconference subject to an obligation to ratify at the next physical in-person meeting. I mean, I, I have clients that haven't met in person in, uh, since, you know, before March of 2020. Um, so, you know, when that comes up, uh, and that relief uh, goes away, uh, they'll have a lot of ratification to do back in person. A lot of talk, you know, about, you know, hopefully making, you know, kind of the video conference option or teleconference option permanent. But so far, um, I, I have not heard um, any uptake on that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think the SEC is finally coming back to the office this month. <laughs> Um, so, uh, we talked about the contracts being subject to annual, uh, reapproval. Um, so, and any material change to one of these contracts, uh, is considered a new contract, which is, which then must be approved by the board, um, and a majority of the independent directors. And then, you know, also by shareholders. Um, so again, the advisory contract is critical and highly regulated, uh, under the investment company act. Um, now the process to approve that contract is 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 just as important as the as the fact of of the approval. Um, so there's two sections of the Investment Company Act, um, Section 15C and Section 36B. Uh, section 15C has an obligation on the board to meet in person and to request. Um, the information they need to approve the contract. And then there's also an obligation on the advisor to provide that information. Uh, and then there is also a fiduciary duty on the advisor uh, in section 36B with respect to its receipt of compensation from the fund. So what this kind of you know, web of statutory provisions has created is um, you know, a, a set of court cases um, where plaintiffs have alleged that uh, fiduciary duties have been breached um, because, you know, the advisor didn't, uh, I'm sorry, because the board didn't appropriately consider the advisory contract. And what's been worked out in that litigation is, is, a, is a set of um, factors that the board should be um, evaluating uh, to determine whether it's appropriate to reapprove the advisory contract. And these are factors like, you know, comparative performance of peer funds. Uh, what does the advisor charge other comparable accounts or funds? You know, what kind of what we call fallout benefits does the um, advisor and its affiliates get from its relationship with the fund? For example, charging brokerage commissions. Um, 
you know, what is that uh, kind of the quality of the advisor's business operation and its personnel, um, as as well as you know, is is the advisor financially sound? Can it perform the contract? Um, you know, our 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 economies of scale that the advisor is realizing by managing a bunch of different funds or a large amount of assets being appropriately reflected in the fee structure. These are all things that the board has to think about and consider, you know, each year as it looks at the contract again. Um, I'd mentioned that approval process also applies to sub-advisors, um, though there's some exemptive relief that kind of deals with um, manager-manager strategies um, subject to some disclosure requirements. Um, and as I mentioned, there's, so there's also a, a different, there's also a no action letter that addresses relief from the in-person requirement in true emergency circumstances um, that is uh, apart from uh, the COVID accommodations. So uh, we'll move on to the next slide. And, and this is the next kind of ma major topic that you need to know about, which is affiliated transactions. Now I know I kind of went through a, a little bit of that uh, on the earlier slide. Um, uh, Stephanie, is, do you want to kind of take a take a shot at um, kind of expanding upon that a little bit, maybe explaining it in a different way if I wasn't totally clear, just to kind of hammer home the point of how important this is? Yeah, so um, the affiliated transaction pro prohibitions are really designed to again, uh, mitigate conflicts of interest associated with this kind of investment company structure and the investment company's relationship with its investment advisor and, um, and affiliates. Um, Section 17 is a very complicated uh, provision and particularly um, when you get into some of the, the 17D points in terms of joint transactions and what is a joint transaction. It's also some of the most interesting though. Um, so um, I, you know, as a as a practitioner, um, it it definitely is interesting to kind of uh, um, look into these these types of questions and um, and analyze the the issues. Um, so the the basic prohibitions are a prohibition on principal transactions. Um, so uh, a an a fund can't engage in a, a basically a direct purchase or sale of securities with an affiliated person. So um, at, at the most basic level, this uh, means that an investment had a security to get rid of, couldn't just sell it to the fund um, because the fund is, well, because the advisor manages the fund's assets and could, could make the, the fund um, purchase it. That's kind of fundamentally what it is designed to address, but uh, it raises a lot of interesting um, complications in terms of um, if you think about uh, cross trades. Uh, so transactions between a fund and another advisory client of the advisor, which quite frankly, might there, there are valid reasons why um, the advisor would want to engage in those cross transactions. The, the fund wants to buy a security that uh, other, other fund perhaps wants to sell the security. Why go out into the market and incur commission costs and what have you when you could cross the security? But technically that would be um, subject to, to 17A. 
Um, but there are exemptive rules um, that kind of address these, these types of situations. So uh, 17A7 um, addresses, for instance, the, the cross-trade scenario. Um, agency transactions. So this is really using an affiliated broker um, with respect to portfolio transactions for the fund. So fund wants to buy uh, shares of uh, Apple and goes out into the market and uses an affiliated broker dealer in order to, to affect that transaction. Um, it's permitted pursuant to 17E1, uh, provided certain, uh, certain conditions are met. Um, the interesting thing there though is, so and this is perhaps getting a little bit in the weeds, equities trade differently in the market than fixed income securities. So an affiliated broker dealer can act on behalf of a fund to purchase an equity security. Typically fixed income trades, uh, fixed income securities trade on a principal basis, which means that the fund would actually be buying the security from the affiliate, uh, the affiliated broker dealer, and we're back into 17A, um, which would not uh, allow that. Um, and then uh, joint transactions. Uh, the the this is a very complex area. Um, basically, anytime you have a fund and an advisor, or really a fund and a fund um, uh, engaging in some sort of transaction together, um, that you could be um, implicating uh, 17D. So. An example is, for instance, joint liability insurance. So funds uh, purchase, uh, typically purchase uh, directors and officers errors and omissions insurance and or uh, insurance for independent trustees. Um, it, uh, if you have a many funds in the fund complex, uh, typically they're going to be acting together to, to buy that insurance. But that actually is a joint transaction because it will, if you assume that an advisor controls the funds uh, that it advises, which um, is not necessarily something that we would uh, say, but um, I think the SEC uh, would, would take that view. Um, uh, the funds are acting together to purchase the insurance and therefore it's a joint transaction. But there are exemptions for this type of scenario where it wouldn't make sense for every fund to go and individually purchase insurance. It's much more cost-effective. Um, there are, and I touched on several of these, the, the exemptive rules, but basically anytime you're analyzing an affiliated transaction issue, it's, is there, it, does it fall within one of these uh, statutory provisions? Is there an exemptive rule? Um, if not, Perhaps there is uh, no action relief. There are various letters under 17D kind of clarifying what is and is not a joint transaction. Um, but um, absent that, possibly you need to seek exemptive relief um, in order to, to proceed with a particular transaction. All right. And and so I'll I'll just kind of I, I kind of went through on this slide here the you know, kind of crazy scenario where you've got some really remote affiliate that gets caught up in the definition of a of, a, of affiliated person. Oh, I'm sorry, gets caught up in uh, the Section 17 prohibitions because those apply to affiliated persons and affiliated persons of those persons, right? So a second tier affiliate. Um, 
So I won't kind of be, belabor that other than to say, you know, look, the best thing that you can do as a practitioner is draw a picture. And so, I mean, you know, at, when you when you get these questions, just get out your, your legal pad and just start drawing, right? Make sure you've got all your relationships drawn out and then you can just sit there and you can count and say, okay, affiliate, who's this person's affiliate? So then you can, you can figure it out. Um, and even that, you know, still creates um, some complex <laughs> scenarios. And the point about, you know, the fixed incomes markets is critical. I mean, that that comes up for, you know, my clients, at least all, all, all the time. Um, and, and it's usually kind of a, what do you, what do you mean? They're, they're just taking a, a spread. It's a commission. It's like, well, no, no, no. You're, you're buying it from the, from the bank. That's your, that's your affiliate. So you can't do that. Um, so those are all kind of good, good points to, to hammer home. And, and so I've also listed here a variety of exemptive rules the SEC has established. Stephanie actually talked about several of these um, between, you know, there's some rules that do allow cross-trading um, in, in, in a limited fashion. Um, and there's some other rules that have, you know, uh, per, per, you know in, in, inadvertently on purpose uh, reined in uh, cross-trading to, to an extent that's, that's not very helpful. But uh, in any event, that's there. Uh, there's rules on using affiliated brokers. Um, a lot of times, uh, fund complexes will merge their funds together, and that's going to be an affiliated transaction. So there's a rule for that as well. And um, uh, there's some rules on permissible joint transactions, some of which uh, Stephanie had mentioned. Um, so, uh, so the next. The next slide is on like another affiliated transaction issue, and this has to do with buying securities during the existence of an underwriting syndicate when some member of the syndicate is an, is, is an affiliate of the fund. Um, you know, this, 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 come, this does come up, um, but uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this one, given that we only have six minutes left, um, and move on to a few more, you know, um, relevant areas that come up more often. Um, so if we go to the next slide, uh, this is open-end fund liquidity. Um, so open-end fund liquidity is, is critically important and you're hearing it talked about constantly right now um, in, in the industry. So um, as we talked about, open-end funds have to redeem their shares on demand. Um, the statute gives a fund seven days to meet the redemption request. Uh, it's often settled earlier. Um, so, you know, it's usually, it's usually settled the next day. Um, and as a result of this obligation to redeem shares on demand, uh, open-end funds can only have 15% of their portfolio invested in illiquid assets. And an illiquid asset is any, any investment that a fund reasonably expects cannot be sold or disposed of in current market conditions in seven calendar days or less without the sale or disposition significantly changing the market value of the investment. So I know that's like one of the only times I read what was actually on the slide, but that's because that's important because that defines, you know, what the open end fund uh, can, can do with its portfolio. Um, and you can only have 15% of your assets in those things that are called illiquid assets. Um, and remember closed end funds don't have that. Um, so 
liquidity is so important that there's a rule called 22E4, um, which requires funds to establish liquidity risk management programs. So you know, the funds have to go through and bucket their investments currently into four buckets, um, highly liquid, moderately liquid, less liquid, and illiquid. Um, there's a, you know, funds have to establish a highly liquid investment minimum. So this is like a minimum amount of assets that have to be highly liquid. Um, the 15% illiquid limit is contained in this rule. It used to be an, essentially an informal position of the staff, um, but now it's part of a rule. Um, and there's various board and SEC reporting requirements, but there's a whole structure around managing uh, liquidity and the risk around liquidity for open-end funds. Um, and you know, to, to what I alluded to when we first started on this slide, um, you know, the SEC recently came out with a proposal that would substantially rework these programs, and um, it would it would change the, the substance and application of the definitions I just talked about, um, and it would eliminate the category that you see there called less liquid, and it would uh, you know it, it would more or less you know create. Um, uh, categories of existing open-end funds that probably wouldn't be able to continue as open-end funds. Um, but, you know, that that is, is you know, kind of quite plainly what um, the SEC, even by their own admission and, and their rule proposal, is, is, uh, is looking to do. So the point there is that liquidity is a big deal, um, and uh, it's, it's a fluid um, requirement at the moment. Um, because you've got existing rule proposals out there that could change it. So that's going to be something uh, to watch. And uh, if uh, you happen to join this program next year, you might have something different to say there. Um, I'm going to spend the last two minutes uh, just uh, soliciting any questions that we may have here. Um, and uh, I will just kind of point you to one last slide towards the end, which is a little bit more detail on the compliance program, um, because the compliance program is, is of course, critical. Um, and the chief compliance officer is a, is a key player um, in ensuring that um, uh, funds and the advisors all uh, comply with um, their obligations under the federal securities laws to ensure that we don't have situations like Bernie Madoff uh, in the public investment company area. So uh, with that, um, I will wrap up and turn it over to uh, Stephanie or uh, Devin. Any, any additional questions? Looking at the Q&A here, I don't see any. But the right. slides will be available. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining.